millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Captain Peter Hammerstead, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you so much, Brett. It's good to be back in Brisbane. It's great to be on your show. I'm happy to talk about all things ocean conservation. Sounds good to me. And look, full disclosure, this is a real highlight for me. I've been doing this podcast thing for five years now. And like I know there's a lot of amazing individuals doing their best to help save the planet. The Jane Goodalls, the Sylvia Earls, Dave Attenboroughs, for, for me... Captain Peter Hammerstead, you are Captain Planet. So to have you in my humble little home on my little podcast talking about all things ocean conservation, I'm buzzing. Well, so. you, your your excitement is <laughs> contagious and I'm, I'm really happy to be here. And I know how much you do in terms of combining physical health with mm-hmm. veganism mm-hmm. and showing what's possible on a vegan diet. So, I mean, the admiration comes from my end. I, I really, really admire all you do and you using your platform to talk about what happens to animals? Oh, I'm blushing. It's it's mainly just me flexing my muscles on, on social media, <laughs> but we'll move on. <laughs> but look, Peter, you are Director of Campaigns for Sea Shepherd and you're also Chairman of Sea Shepherd Australia. It sounds like it's potentially the coolest job in the world, but what actually does that mean? What do you do for a job? I feel very lucky to have the job mm. that I do. I've been with Sea Shepherd now for 20 years. Mm. This will be my 20th year anniversary, actually, this month. I started as an oiler in the engine room. Mm. My first five and a half months with Sea Shepherd were spent cleaning out fuel tanks and ankle deep in diesel sludge. And I felt like the luckiest person in the world that I was contributing in some small way to getting a ship ready to go to sea to protect marine wildlife. And since then, I've, I've taken on other responsibilities that went beyond the confines of a fuel tank. <laughs> and now I oversee our government partnerships around the world where we're working with countries, in particular developing countries, to fight illegal fishing, working to fundraise and do outreach and tell people about what's happening to our oceans. And that includes coming to Australia a couple of times a year, and I feel very blessed to to do that. We are blessed to have you here. It's not an everyday thing for someone to join Sea Shepherd Australia in in the oil room. So where does this passion for direct action and conservation for our oceans come from? It came at a young age. I was 14 years old. I saw a picture of a dead whale being pulled up the slipway of this 8,000-ton factory whaling ship down in the Antarctic, and I just could not believe that whaling was still happening. And as I looked into the issue, and I discovered that not only was whaling still going on in the year 1998 when I saw this image, but it was happening in violation of the law. It was happening in a whale sanctuary. And I lost a lot of faith in government Mm -hmm. solutions to every single problem. I came to discover that it requires individual action. It requires taking personal responsibility to bring about change. And there really was only one group that was tackling the whalers head on Mm -hmm. through direct action. And that was Sea Shepherd. And at the age of 18, when I was then old enough to join a Sea Shepherd ship, I think that approach really appealed to me, Mm. that black and white approach to it, that this is wrong, we're going to get a ship ready to go out to sea, and we're going to do everything within our power to physically stop this from happening. That's so cool. And look, I've been doing the environmental 
professional stuff like environmental engineering for something like 20 years and I hang out with a whole bunch of environmental scientists, engineers, planners, et cetera. But, and there's NGOs, there's state governments, local governments, consultancies, and they're all doing something to help better protect the environment. But I don't see anyone doing anything like as a, anything like as effective as what you guys do at Sea Shepherd and Sea Shepherd Australia. Like, and I know you guys run on almost very little funding, but the bang for buck that you guys are able to achieve is unbelievable it's incredible i think it's a direct result of it because of people like you in charge or leading the way and motivating others to do more i think we have a unique metric for success yeah. so i think a lot of ngos struggle to report on mm. the achievements that that they do actually many of them deliver on mm. for us since our metrics are criminal operations shut down and animals saved we can actually point to tangible results. We can point to numbers. We're not measuring our success by our membership base. We have a very small but very dedicated supporter base. We don't measure our success by the number of glossy reports we put out. We don't mm. put out any glossy reports. <laughs> the, the work that we do, we do at sea. At the end of the day, the achievements are animals swimming free, not getting hooked, not getting netted. That is the bang for the buck. And can you give the listeners some idea of those results? Like, can you get an idea of criminal operations stopped or animals saved? I think I think in Australia, when people think of Sea Shepherd, they think about the whaling campaigns mm. that we did in the Southern Ocean. Mm. Every single austral summer, we were chasing Japanese whaling ships around the frozen continent of Antarctica. Mm. And in 15 years of campaigning on that issue, we saved over 6,000 whales and ultimately generated so much publicity on the issue of whaling in the Antarctic that the Australian government, supported by the government of New Zealand, brought the government of Japan to the International Court of Justice and the highest court in the world then declared that this was in fact illegal and whaling was then shut down in the Southern Ocean. We then took on illegal fishing in Antarctica and shut down all six vessels that were fishing illegally in the Southern Ocean. That included a ship called Thunder, mm. this notorious poaching vessel wanted by the International Criminal Police Organization. My crew and I chased this boat for 110 days until the captain of that ship, unable to shake us, decided to sink his own ship to destroy the evidence on board. We rescued him and all of his crew and the ship never fished again. But what we're doing now is what I'm really proud of. And it's working together with governments around the African continent to arrest illegal fishing boats. These are countries with a Navy, with a Coast Guard, but they may not have a vessel asset that can cover the entirety of their waters. So the law enforcement from that country, they sail on board our ship and we assist them to make these arrests. Mm -hmm. And each vessel arrested for illegal fishing, for me, as a vegan of 20 now, almost 22 years, each one of these arrested vessels is an illegal slaughterhouse shutdown. Wow, that is in absolutely incredible. But let's just define what actually illegal fishing actually means, because I think a lot of people may not be familiar with what it actually means. So what does illegal fishing mean? So we, we have a huge overfishing problem mm. in the oceans. I don't think that's news to mm. really anybody. Uh, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization state that 90% of the world's fisheries are either fully exploited or overexploited. And driving that is illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. It's known by its acronym, IUU fishing. Illegal fishing is essentially you're fishing without a license. You're fishing maybe in prohibited areas like marine parks. You're targeting endangered species, protected species like some species of sharks. You're fishing with illegal fishing gear, gear that's prohibited because it's particularly destructive. And ultimately, you're getting away with it because enforcement is so difficult. What proportion of fishing from our seas is potentially illegal? It's believed that 20% of the global catch of fish is caught through IUU fishing. That means that one out of five fish sold is caught by some illegal operator. And so if we're serious about addressing the issue of overfishing, then we can really begin with by taking on the illegal operators because we already have the law on our side. And if we can eliminate illegal fishing, we eliminate 20% of this global fishing pressure. And that allows the oceans to stand a chance yeah. in recovering. How would the consumer know if they're eating a piece of fish from their local supermarket, how would they know whether it's been illegally caught or, or otherwise? Very difficult to know. And uh, it's easier to launder fish than it is to launder money. Mm. By the time the vessel has killed this fish out at sea, then 
frozen them and transported them onto, say, a refrigerated cargo ship. It's then offloaded in a port somewhere. It's then transported. But it, it, the fish exchange hands so many times before they actually end up in the supermarket that it's very difficult to know exactly where that fish was caught. And it's not just an ecological issue. Um, I've heard you talk about the human aspect of illegal fishing. Can you can you talk to that so people who might not be familiar with it? As as fishing vessels have to go out further and stay out longer to catch fewer and fewer fish, there are certain fixed costs associated with running an industrialized fishing vessel. Mm -hmm. So you're going to burn the same amount of fuel every day. That's not going to change. You're going to go through the same amount of fishing gear every year. Mm -hmm. That's also not going to change. So where can you cut costs and still make a profit? Well, that's going to be labor. And that's why in the past decades, you've seen this shift in how the labor market works on fishing boats. And so a lot of the fishers, the people on the fishing boat who do the hard work of pulling up fishing gear, deploying fishing gear, working 16, 20 hours a day, and some of the worst weather conditions imaginable uh, in horrible living conditions as well. These are people who are then predominantly recruited from Indonesia, but then also developing countries and uh, people being paid $150 a month, $250 a month, people who are recruited by crewing agencies who very literally hold the deed to their homes. So if they don't complete their labor contract of three years or five oh. years, they can actually lose their house. It does show this correlation between environmental issues and human yeah. issues, where if the labor rights were actually respected, if you took out forced labor and labor abuse from the fishing equation, then a lot of these operators just couldn't couldn't continue. So what do you guys actually do with these illegal fishing operations? Because I'm guessing you guys don't have the sort of uh, regulatory power to arrest a, a ship. So what do you guys do? How do you guys act to stop this? So it depends if the illegal fishing is in the high seas. So that's an area that's outside national jurisdiction. It's the Wild West. And that's about 40% of the world's oceans wow. is outside the domain of any one country. And so when we're in the high seas, like where we found that notorious illegal fishing mm. vessel, the Thunder, um, we can we can do quite a lot from a direct action mm. standpoint. We can take their fishing gear. We can block their operations. We can chase them down. Uh, we've had collisions at sea with illegal operators. If it's in the waters of a country, then the authority rests with that country. And so that's when we take on law enforcement from our partner country. Mm. They are stationed on board our ship. They have the authority to board, inspect, and arrest vessels, and we're essentially bringing them to the scene of the crime mm. so they can grab these fishing boats. That's where I think uh, a lot of people have the perception of Sea Shepherd or Sea Shepherd Australia as really hardcore ramming ships, menacing to baddies, basically. But there's a real strong collaboration with a whole bunch of organizations and countries. I mean, how do you facilitate and manage that collaboration, recognizing that your ships are, have got pirate flags and your uh, vessels are like menacing teeth jagged sides type thing. It's, 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 it's bizarre, really, from a perspective. So I think there's a perception that people support Sea Shepherd because we're confrontational, and, mm. that, and that's true. And we are somewhat controversial as well. Maybe the type of controversy has shifted as we're more collaborative now, mm. but still, when vessels are being arrested from the People's Republic of China or from the European Union, the owners of those vessels in the developed world, they find our work incredibly controversial. I think what makes us unique is our effectiveness. And what's effective is always changing over time. The tactics have to adapt to whatever the the situation is. I've discovered that the most effective thing we can do is to work with willing partners to fight illegal fishing. This is how we're able to save the largest number of animals possible. And when a fishing trawler is arrested and then detained in port, well, every day that their net is dry on deck instead of wet and being dragged through the water, that's tens of thousands of sea creatures mm. saved. Mm. And I look at activists from France to, to Germany locking down to in slaughterhouses to shut down those slaughterhouses mm. for, for a matter of hours, and then they're arrested, and it has repercussions that mm. they carry with them for the rest of their lives. Well, working with the authorities, we're able to shut down slaughterhouses, not just for hours, but weeks, months, and sometimes once and for all. 
Yeah, and once and for all, as an example, was you mentioned the thunder. I've, I've heard you speak about it uh, in your TEDx talk, but if if someone hasn't uh, isn't familiar with the Chasing Thunder story, can you give people a, a snapshot of what that actually involved? The thunder was a vessel that was wanted by the International Criminal Police Organization. This was a ship that evaded justice, avoided law enforcement by changing their name. They changed their flag. They changed their paint scheme constantly. Mm-hmm. They would come into port with one name and leave with another. They were the subject of pretty much every illegal fishing seminar that you could think of. Governments could not stop this ship. They could not find it. We decided that we would try. The plan was so simple, it had never been attempted before. The idea being, we would find this ship in the most remote area of water in the world, down in the Antarctic. We would follow them wherever they went for however long it took until somebody took over what was essentially a citizen's arrest on the high seas. And the thinking being that if we were with them, they couldn't change their name. They couldn't change their flag. We could provide real-time intelligence to law enforcement saying, this is where the ship is, right here, right now. Somebody arrest this ship. We found the boat about two weeks sailing from Fremantle. We found them after just two days of searching in this field of icebergs. I remember looking at my radar screen with a range set to about 12 nautical miles and seeing a hundred targets on that radar screen, like a vegan pepperoni pizza. (laughs) Each one of these targets, most likely an iceberg, but potentially this ship that we were looking for. And one of the targets then began to move and, and we knew that we'd found them. That was the starting shot for what would become the longest maritime pursuit in history. And the first thing that Thunder tried to do was to lose us in the heavy ice flows that surround the Antarctic. But we just followed in the warm line that the wake of the ship drew through the ice ahead of us. They then tried to lose us in the weather. Nine, 10 meter seas beaten, battered the ship as we followed them north out of the southern oceans. They then tried to wait us out. They had this plan that they would test our patience and hope that by just drifting, shutting down their engine and conserving fuel, that we would give up the chase. And so for almost 50 days, we just drifted together, both of us conserving fuel. And I I remember every, every day I would get the fuel figures around noon from my chief engineer. We were burning very little fuel, only what our generator was consuming because our engine was also shut down. And through some pretty easy calculations, I I determined that if the thunder drifted indefinitely, then we could potentially be out at sea for for two years. I went down to my (laughs) chief cook. Uh, Her name was Priya. She's from Byron Shire. And I asked Priya, do we have enough food to stay out at sea for two years? And I'll always remember what she said to me because she said, we have enough rice, we have enough beans to survive at sea for two years. (laughs) Our sister ship, the Sam Simon, now named the Age of Union, had just pulled up 72 kilometers of illegal fishing net abandoned by thunder when we found them. So they were heading up to Mauritius to hand this net over to the police as evidence. And so there was an opportunity for some of my crew to, to move over to the Sam Simon and to be taken back to port. I had a meeting with the crew and I said, look, if you stay, it's with the knowledge that we may be at sea for two years. And out of 30 crew, 26 stayed, only four departed. And I'm, I'm still inspired by that. That is unbelievable. And I, and I told the crew, I said, there's, there's no guarantee of outcome here. Uh, we could follow them for a year and then we have a mechanical problem that allows the thunder mm. to get away. We could, after two years, follow them into port and maybe we're the ones who get arrested mm. and they get away scot-free. The only thing we know with 100% certainty is that every day that we're with this ship, mm. they are not able to fish. Yeah. Every day that we're with them, toothfish are being saved. Mm. And that alone has to be reason mm. enough to continue the chase. The animals we save today, that has to be enough to continue the pursuit. And that's a lesson I take with me in all the campaigning that we do, because I think as animal rights activists, as conservationists, it, it's so daunting to take on the big challenge, whether it's climate or overfishing. I mean, where do you even begin, mm. right? I joined Sea Shepherd when I was 18 years old. I joined with this youthful naivety that I was going to save the world. And I've come to learn that one person can't save the world, but you can save the entire world for one individual animal. Mm. And that, that has to be good enough. That is awesome. But the story continues. Like obviously you've, you got to 
crew of what thirty something looking at some rice and beans. Right. <laughs> so 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 the, the the vegan chili continued to be made on board by a vessel the Bob Barker, and then after fifty days of drifting, we called it the Great Drift Period the vessel started moving again and we chased them up past South Africa and a little bit of an African geography lesson here. We went past Namibia, Angola, the Democratic Republic of Congo, then the Republic of Congo. And finally, after 110 days, after being chased across 11,000 nautical miles, across three oceans, the thunder began to sink and the captain of the ship decided he was going to try to destroy the evidence by sinking his own vessel. And I've heard you tell this story like he was pretty happy about, he thought he'd basically sunk it pretty well until a a couple of your crew got on board his ship before it was going down. Is that right? Well, after he abandoned the ship, I had three very brave crew members who volunteered to go on board and see what evidence that they could potentially seize. And so as the Thunder captain and his crew sat in their life rafts, They thinking watched, they got away with it. Thinking they got away with it. <laughs> uh, they were they were pounding their fists in the air like that. they'd got away with the perfect crime. Yeah. Meanwhile, three of my crew went up on the ship and they took computer hard drives and nautical charts. They went through the holds of the ship and saw that doors to companionways and to, to cabins were latched open or tied open, which is counterintuitive to maintaining buoyancy. Mm, to if, deliberately sinking the ship. Right. Yeah. Ensuring that the flooding would move mm. from one compartment mm. to to another. Mm. And uh, that was the evidence that allowed for them to be convicted. Wow. And we didn't even know who the owner of the ship was. The ship was owned by a Nigerian company that in turn was owned by a Panamanian company. And that's where the buck stopped. Right. But a few months later, I received a phone call from an insurance investigator who asked me if I'd ever heard of the thunder. (laughs) And uh, he told me he'd got my number from someone at Interpol. He was investigating a case where a ship had sunk in the Gulf of Guinea and off the west coast of Africa. 30 tons of toothfish, which had been illegally caught, by the way, was part of this claim. Uh, But that's how brazen these poachers can be, that even after getting away with the perfect crime, they decide to try to cash in on the insurance. And that's ultimately what roped in the real beneficial owner who was based in the north of Spain. Wow. And long story short, I guess they got a dirty, great big fine and and maybe some jail time or? Long story short, the captain and two of his officers, they got three years in prison, which which they got in Sao Tome, which was very unusual. Yeah. And was a a great success for the government of Sao Tome. And the owner of the vessel, he was fined, I think about 16, 17 million euros. So, wow. 25 million Australian. And- in the absence of you guys doing this, is there anyone else who's going to step into the gap? Not really, because there is no United Nations Navy. There is no Interpol Navy. Ultimately, there is this big gap, this big vacuum that if it's not filled by government actors, then a non-governmental one has to fill the void. And so much of the oceans are ungoverned. And even the areas that should be governed, there are all Mm. kinds of challenges Mm. in addressing the issue of illegal fishing, whether that's a lack of political will or maybe the economic resources of the country are stretched, or maybe it's simply a jurisdictional issue. Wow. And and obviously, we, we touched on the human impacts of the people involved in the fishing operations, but I'm guessing particularly like the coast of West Africa, like when you've got a a floating death machine raping mm. and pillaging the oceans, there isn't really much left for the local fishermen to get access to, is there? There isn't. And and 50% of the world's population live close to the shore. They live coastally. In around the African continent, small-scale artisanal fishing is what supplies the local mm. fish markets. The industrialized fishing that's ha- that happens is largely exported to Europe, the United States, some to Australia as well, wow. to the People's Republic of China. And there's then this conflict between the people who've been fishing small scale for hundreds, if not thousands of years in the same waters. And these industrialized boats that are a relatively new phenomenon. In Europe, you have a fishing fleet that's at two and a half times what could be fished in European waters. You have a Chinese distant water fishing fleet that's ultimately eliminated fish off Southeast Asia and is now looking for fishing grounds elsewhere. And so you have European fishing boats and Chinese fishing boats congregating around the African continent where there still is fish. Wow. 
That's crazy. And like you, you talk about this new phenomenon of industrial commercial fishing and, and obviously uh, the illegal operations and the various methods they use. But I've heard you talk about essentially pre-industrial fishing conditions, basically a different baseline of biodiversity in our oceans than what we have currently. Can you give some people around the insight of around, I think you talked about um, Newfoundland as well mm-hmm. as uh, I think ancient Greece as well. Can you talk to that? What drives me crazy when people talk about so-called sustainable fishing yeah. is that the measure of what sustainability is, is already based off a an emptied ocean. We forget how bountiful the oceans once were. There was a Greco-Roman poet during the rule of Marcus Aurelius, a Roman emperor, who wrote a five-volume how-to fishing manual that included a technique of throwing a spiked log off the side of a boat, watching as that spiked plank would sink to the seabed as it impaled fish on the way down. And it would then be hauled back up on the boat and it would be covered in fish. And we think this is so outrageous. We can't imagine an ocean that bountiful that this would be an effective fishing technique. But he wrote a manual about it. <laughs> there are accounts from three, four hundred years ago, vessels arriving off the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, where in eastern Canada, where ships would sometimes have to stop for a full 24 hours to allow for pods of whales and dolphins to cross their bow. 24 hours of a whale and dolphin traffic jam. Ship captains would put in their logbooks that there was so much cod off of Newfoundland that they could walk across the backs of cod to shore. They could throw a bucket over the side and that bucket would be hauled up and it would be overflowing with cod. We think of these stories as apocryphal. We think Mm. of them as exaggerated because we can't imagine what a normal, healthy ocean looks like. And the Mediterranean, that opium, the guy who wrote the fishing manual from the Roman Empire time, talked about this is now the most overfished body of water in the world. We have less than 10% of the fish in the Mediterranean that was there 50 years ago. And so we're always adapting to diminishment. You know, there's, there's this concept of fishermen's tales or of, of one's father mm. or grandfather exaggerating the fish they caught. But it's such a common story that it's usually true. Mm. It's just that our idea of what's healthy, our idea of what's a big fish has already been distorted because our baseline of what's normal has completely shifted. So before we can even start talking about what's sustainable, we need to allow the oceans to recover and properly rewild. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Commercial fishing aside, you've got these added pressures of climate change and, and pollution, obviously. So that baseline level, that measure of so-called sustainability, I, I actually don't know how you do it, basically. But meanwhile, there are organisations such as the Marine Stewardship Council and others who do provide some sort of sustainability accreditation. What value do you put on those? At the end of the day, I think some of these accreditation schemes um, are biased because it's the fishing companies paying them to certify their fisheries. So if you have to certify some fisheries Mm. or there's no income stream at all, Mm. right? Mm. There are vessels that we've assisted with the arrest of off the coast of West Africa that had their fisheries sustainably certified. Just two months ago, we assisted the Gambian Navy to arrest a trawler off of the Gambia in West Africa. And on board the ship, this was a vessel that was using illegal fishing gear. They were using undersized mesh. The mesh of the net was so small that juvenile fish couldn't escape. And on board in the hold were boxes of shrimp, 
that were labeled sustainably caught. And so I think people do trust these labels and I think that trust can be exploited. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, and you t- like that low, small gill net size, for example, mm. obviously catches a whole bunch of stuff that they may not necessarily be targeting, which is often referred to as bycatch, and there's mm. various forms of bycatch. But for people who aren't familiar with bycatch, what's your interpretation of what it means and what it actually means to the health of our oceans? I always refer to bycatch as the invisible victims of mm. fishing. These are the non-target mm. species, the sea turtles, the undersized fish, the other creatures that or who are also entangled in the fishing gear as you're in pursuit of tuna or shrimp or some Mm. other creature. The shrimp fishery can be particularly damaging depending on where it is in the world. And I remember off the coast of Gabon in Central Africa, going on board one trawler, where as the net was hauled up on deck, this was a shrimp trawler, 99.8% of what was brought up was other species, only 0.2% was shrimp. And I'll always remember the image of that spilling out on deck because it was literally a shrimp cocktail. And to bring about that one shrimp cocktail took the lives of tens of thousands of creatures, almost all of whom were thrown overboard dead. That is staggering. You'd almost laugh at it because it's so almost comic, but the implications of that essentially mass murder, unnecessary, is just diabolical. And you times that by how many other sort of uh, vessels are doing that more or less the same operation. It just staggers belief. And and I think the fishing industry gets away with it a lot by how it uses language to Mm. justify slaughter. I mean, we see that in all animal industries. Mm. That's why people go to the shop and they buy beef. They don't buy cow. They Mm. buy pork, not pig. The fishing industry has it down to an art. So Mm. we don't talk about fish populations. We talk about fish stock Mm. as if they're taken off the shelf of a warehouse. We don't talk about fish being hooked, stabbed, netted. We talk about them being caught as Mm. if they're a football. Um, And we don't talk about the number of fish killed every year. We talk about fish in terms of their weight. So in one single sentence, you can talk about 50 ton of fish stock Mm. being, and here's the real crazy one, is harvested. Mm. That's a big term used in the fishing industry, which makes it sound like these animals, uh, these sentient creatures are being picked off of trees as if they were apples, right? So if we talk about 50 ton of fish stock being harvested, of course, there's a big emotional disconnect between the animals and the people buying them. Yeah, and and where do you think that comes from? Uh, like, and it's not just the language; it's the perceptions around fish uh, or sea life in general. Like, there's this, uh, I guess, myth around the, the memories, like goldfish. They don't have feelings; they can't feel pain, which we know scientifically is just complete rubbish. But mm. where where does this come from? Or are we just trying to tell ourselves a story that just doesn't exist? I think as human beings, we have a tendency to relate to other mammals. Right. And it's because of the expressions that we see in the faces of other mammalian Mm. species. Fish don't have vocal cords. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, even though they have the same ability to feel pain as you or I, their screams are silent. Mm. Um, That results in people having less ethical consideration for them. Fish don't have eyelids. And that seems like a ridiculous reason to justify two trillion of fish being killed every single year, but they don't blink. And there's this example of when Disney Pixar made the film Finding Nemo, they hired the best animal behavioralists, the best marine biologists to make the critters and creatures as realistic as possible. It's why Nemo's father is protective of his son because clownfish are that way in in the natural Mm -hmm. world. The Sea turtles, the sharks move just as they do in the wild in their animated forms. But there is one crucial difference, and that's that the animated fish in Finding Nemo have eyelids, because without the addition of eyelids, people just would not empathize with them. And so we need eyelids, we need eyebrows, we need eyelashes to show expression. Fish don't have them. And because they don't have eyelids. We're willing to massacre them in such large numbers. And it's bizarre. It's an absurd I've thing. I've never thought about it. I don't think anyone's going to watch Finding Nemo the same way again. But in the absence of them having a voice, it seems like you, Sea Shepherd Australia in particular, are highly, highly effective at it being that voice. But obviously, that must take a 
a toll as well. Like I, I, I stand by my statement before. You guys do incredible work. More the most effective marine conservation um, organization or movement by by a country mile. But you're still people. You're still you're relying on a crew that potentially looking down the barrel of a two year hiatus in the ocean, sitting next to a, a vessel that really doesn't like you very much. How do you guys manage that? I guess just your yourselves and look after yourself. I have my own ways of doing it. Yeah. I think at the end of the day, when, when you know that something is wrong, you have an obligation, a moral duty to do something to change it. Mm-hmm. You, you can't just sit back and expect somebody else to take care of the problem. Your own individual act, action is necessary. Uh, for me, I go on board together with our partners around the African continent. I go on board legal fishing vessels to help look to see if they're in compliance with the law. And I go on board illegal fishing vessels. And sometimes the difference between a legal boat and an illegal boat is just a piece of paper. Mm. One paid for a license. The legal boat may be far more destructive than the illegal ship. And as somebody who's been a vegan 21 years, I can find that really challenging. My coping mechanism for that is there's nothing more rewarding than standing on the deck of an illegal fishing vessel that's just been placed under arrest, that is being escorted back to port. And you know that what you just witnessed in terms of the destruction of that fishing net coming up on deck, that's not going to happen again for a long time, maybe not ever again. That that makes everything worth it. Mm. I'll go on board a legal boat and that vessel has to be let go to continue operating because it's illegal fishing that we're taking on. And what about the other crew? Do they all have their own sort of ways of being away from home for so long and and having that pressure as well about making decisions? Because my perspective, the implications or the consequences of making a wrong decision or a mistake or a misjudgment could be enormous. Mm. Uh, That could be the the death of thousands of beautiful creatures. That must weigh heavily as well on people as well. So you got away from home, you got the pressure of decisions, et cetera. I guess just everyone just do their own thing and get by. We have a good sense of community on board, and, and there's a mix of veteran crew and crew who have never been on board a ship before in their lives. And they learn from the people who have been on board, not just in terms of seamanship, but also in terms of dealing with the particular situations that we're confronted with. I think communication is is the real key, mm-hmm. constantly reminding people of why we're mm. out there why what we do that matters the key the key word is why we have to know why we're doing it and so i i try to rem- remind my crew of that every day that we're out at sea why are we there why does it matter why does it make a difference that's really key but then you have a supportive community these are people who share your values mm. that you share this small space with and that's a really rare thing and it's the cause that unites people right and there's something human about needing to find purpose and i think our crew are very lucky to have found purpose in their lives. And that purpose, even during difficult times, even when things are stressful, even when you see tremendous animal suffering, it's still that that purpose, the fact that you have purpose, that what you do gives meaning to your life, that does give joy, even if you're feeling distress in that particular moment. The underlying current is joy because you are making a difference. That's amazing to hear. And uh, like I guess a lot of people make it perceived Sea Shepherd Australia. It's like, oh, aggressive, bunch of vegans, you know, chaos, whatever, just whatever. But I've actually heard that you guys, it's almost like a military operation. It's mm. so very structured and you know every person knows exactly what they're doing at any particular time. Is that a, a fair, uh, I guess, description of what it's like on board? There isn't a single person on board the ship who doesn't fill a function on board that vessel. Yeah, well, Everybody has a role yeah. to play, whether you're a navigating officer or an engineering officer, or you're a cook or you're a deckhand or whatever your role is, you're a small boat operator, a welder or, or a carpenter. The ship can't function as well as it does if any one of those people were missing. Right. Yeah. So the key is having that structure work, having the people work together as a team. And that also strengthens the group in confronting and dealing with any of the challenges that come up. Yeah. And it's obviously not a it's not a cruise ship. It's not like you can go play bingo or or, or go for a run around, um, you know, the deck, or, or just I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm not sure actually how you do just fun stuff. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, chill out. You know, let some steam off. What's it? What's the like? What What do you guys do for fun on board? 
The food is better than on most cruise ships. <laughs> it's not the all-you-can-eat buffet, but it is of, It is all vegan. Yeah, of course. Uh, it is all plant-based. It's a decision that the organization made. We don't want to spend donor money on yeah. animal products because so many of our supporters, like you, are mm. are vegan sure. and are plant-based. Mm. Why, If you're not going to buy animal products on, on your own dime, why would you give your money to somebody else to do mm. it? Mm. So that, that is a decision that, that was made many, many years ago. And... In that way, I feel that Sea Shepherd is a bridge between the animal rights community and the conservation movement. I don't think there's that overlap too often. We do provide that bridge. In terms of downtime, there isn't that much downtime. Really? The ship yeah. is operating around the clock, 24 hours a day, especially when we're out at sea. But people find their own ways to entertain themselves. They, For some reason, I think I've seen the television show The Office at least three or four times. That seem that, that seems to be a favorite of the crew. It's American version or British version? The American version. Although both both are great. Both are great. I just don't think that the British version is long enough to sustain 110 days at sea. So it ends up being the American one that's gone on to 10 or 11 seasons. People work out and exercise. Sometimes we'll have a crew member who's a yoga instructor. They'll organize yoga for the crew and you might have 10, 15 crew doing yoga in the morning. It really depends on, on the group of people and, cool. and people coming with their own creative ideas and people do other kind of campaigning outside of Sea Shepherd and they, mm. they talk about that and do seminars on that and people read a lot. I mean, I, I always read a lot when I'm on the ship. I bring a half my luggage as books. There are many different ways that people use to pass the time. And fun and games aside, obviously a lot of what you do is dangerous. Talk to the danger, like what are the key risks from a health, human health perspective of the crew uh, doing what you guys do? First of all, being at sea is dangerous in mm. and of itself. Mm. So Sea Shepherd aside, working on board a vessel at sea has danger. Mm. You're going into weather conditions where seas could be up to 10, 12 meters, and that's not not dangerous. You can take on hurricane force winds like we did when we were in the Antarctic just earlier this year. That is dangerous in and of itself. If you were to fall overboard, you may as well fall off a skyscraper in terms of nobody notices that you've gone overboard in some of the remote areas that we're, we're working. Uh, you may never be found again. So these are the inherent dangers of just working mm -hmm. on a ship. But beyond that, not only are we working at sea, but we're going up against poaching activity with criminal syndicates mm. backing them, and we're trying to attack their bottom line. Thankfully, working together with our government partners, we do have Coast Guard and Navy from the host nation on board. They are armed, and that does mitigate any kind of violent threat toward us, but they do sometimes find weapons on board the ships that are boarded. And so I, I can just be very thankful that we have that collaboration. Right. Has there been any particular close call, you're like, whoa, we're lucky to get out of that one alive. With the Thunder, we had a very close call where there was a collision that was averted by less than a meter. And I later learned through the investigative work of two Norwegian journalists who spoke to the crew of the Thunder months and years after the ship sank, that the captain of the vessel had orders from land from the owner to to try to sink us oh and my. to try to break the ship below the waterline. And that if we were ever in distress to abandon us there and use oh. that as an opportunity to try to get away. So they were planning to ram you guys and let mm -hmm. you guys sink. They were. And then, and then sail away. And then take off. And thankfully, we had a little bit of a speed advantage to them that that, that wasn't possible. But uh, that, that was the plan. And unlike with us, where when the Thunder was sinking, of course, we immediately mobilized yeah. to rescue the crew. There is an obligation for safety of life at sea, both legally and ethically. We know that the Thunder captain was planning to leave us behind. Wow. And what are the consequences of that happening? So you're sinking ship a long way from help. Is that just essentially everyone's in a whole bunch of problems? You're on a life raft and you're potentially floating for a few weeks or, or, or what? Or worse? Well, where we found Thunder was two weeks sailing from the nearest port. And that means you could be days from the nearest rescue vessel. You're certainly two weeks away from the nearest properly staffed and properly equipped hospital, right? So that is a danger in of in itself. If you were to have to abandon ship in particular weather conditions, I mean, if it's, if the sea state is like what I mentioned before, 10, 11, 12 meters, and the water temperature is just above freezing, your likelihood of surviving an abandonment of ship is as close to zero as you can get. Oh my goodness. Wow. 
So it is a real risk. And, but I, I find it inspiring. People do risk their lives for all sorts of things, mm. but very rarely is it to protect a species other than our own. Yeah. And I find that to be pretty amazing having a crew of 30 people who are willing to risk their lives to save Patagonian toothfish. Yeah. Is there a like you mentioned the chasing thunder story? Is that your fondest memory on being a, on a, on the Sea Shepherd Australia or Sea Shepherd crew? I, I certainly have a, a quite a lot of fond yeah. memories. It it may be one of the more memorable ones mm. because of the scale and scope of that operation. But I I often think to a situation that occurred much closer to Australia. I I had just gotten off a, a campaign down in the Antarctic where we'd been chasing the whaling fleet. It was the fifth or sixth year consecutive year that I'd been doing it. To be completely honest, there was a bit of a, an emotional detachment from from the work. I think mm. a lot of animal rights activists can relate to it where you're so hung up on numbers, like the fact that I can say 73 to 100 million sharks are are, are killed every single year. And, and, and we can feel such a sense of despair from that. So I did mention that was a key metric of our success, like a vessel that's arrested off the coast of West Africa every day spent in ports is tens of thousands of lives saved, but that can still abstract these animal lives. Mm -hmm. The ship had just gone into Hobart and there was a whale stranding, a pilot whale stranding off of uh, King Island in the Bass Strait, a place called Narakupa. And myself and five crew, we flew over there to assist Tasmanian Parks and Wildlife to get the pilot whales back out to sea. There were 54 pilot whales that who were still alive. By the time we arrived, all 54 had been reintroduced to sea, but one of them, she re-stranded herself. And then the weather took a turn for the worse, and there wasn't another opportunity that day to try to get her back out to sea. My crew and I, together with Taz Parks and Wildlife, we spent three days with this one single pilot whale, and we set up tarpaulin shields or walls to protect her from the wind. We we covered her body with wet towels to keep it from cracking in the sun. Mm. My job was with standing with a stopwatch and measuring the time between breaths, which in the beginning was every 30 seconds. And on day three was down to every two, two and a half minutes. Her breathing started slowing down and her breath from her blowhole started smelling like curdled milk, which mm. was an indicator that she was dehydrated. And after three days, there was finally this break in the weather and we took her down to the beach and between two jet skis, towed her out to sea. And about a hundred meters offshore, she broke away from this tow line and started swimming off in a different direction from where we were taking her. We were very concerned standing on the beach that she was going to restrand herself for the second time and she may not then have enough strength for a last rescue attempt. What was reported to us was that the other 53 pilot whales were still offshore waiting for her. Oh, and wow. as she swam to them, they all circled her and they nudged her with their bulbous heads. And together, all 54 pilot whales went out to sea together. And the 53 pilot whales that had, who had been rescued earlier, they knew that one of their own was still up on that beach mm. and they waited for her mm. knowing that she was still on that beach. And I think about that all of the time because when I'm talking about the 30,000, 40,000 fish saved every single day when an illegal fishing boat is detained in port, it's 30,000 times one. When we're talking about the 73 million sharks killed every year, it's 73 million times one. Goes back to what I talked about earlier. One person can't save the world. We can save the entire world for one individual animal. I think back on that pilot whale all the time. And that's one of the reasons that I always put two fish back. Oh, man. I tell you what, if I was stuck on a boat for two years eating rice and beans, <laughs> listening to you talk you know, for a few minutes every day, I'd be happy, man. It's such an inspirational thing that you guys do. And I know it's not just yourself, it's a whole collective uh, team, but I, I still maintain you, the work that you guys do is just unbelievably inspiring. And it's just, like I said, it's a, I'm such a privilege to be talking with you. I've got a whole bunch of notes. Have him look at them. I'm being engrossed <laughs> with this conversation. What inspires me is people like you, Brad. It's, it's, it's a real fact that without people like you supporting us, the ship does not go out to sea. I would just be a guy standing at the wheel of a ship <laughs> in port in Hobart 
And that's the end of the story, right? Yeah. Behind every crew member on board that ship is people like you who believe in the cause, who know that the only hope these animals have is that ship getting out to sea, who do the outreach, who raise the funds, are onshore volunteers around Australia telling people about what's happening. It's tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that make all those successes possible. I'm, I'm incredibly proud of what we achieved with Chasing the mm-hmm. Thunder, Right, but it wasn't just the thirty of us on board mm. the ship Bob Barker that did it. It was the tens of thousands of people who made that happen. And and when we're successful in conservation, in animal rights, it's not because of a person. It's because there's there's a system that is working. I feel very lucky that I get to be at the helm of a ship in that system. But it's just one part of it. And you're a big part of the other part of it. And so, no, thank you. You inspire me. And every day that we're out at sea, it's with the knowledge that there's tens of thousands of people depending on us to do the work that they need us to do. Mm. Because it's a lot of trust. Most people work jobs that they don't like. All they get from it at the end of the day is money. Mm. And when they decide not to spend that money on themselves, but to give it away Mm. with warm hands, there's an obligation to do good with that, to live up to that trust. That's what we do. That's why we convert it to life saved. That's wonderful for you to say that. But from my perspective, there's a lot of charities and a lot of uh, organizations and movements doing amazing work. But in terms of bang for buck, in terms of dollar... uh, donated versus outcome achieved there's no one like sea shepherd and sea shepherd australia so and it blows my mind when i think about the work that you guys do which is completely funded by individuals like there's no governments there's no grants there's whatever it's it's people putting their hand in their pocket and giving you money or buying a sea shepherd australia beanie or hoodie or whatever and that money going towards the incredible work that you guys do so from my perspective if you've got some cash in your pocket or in your bank account that you're thinking what could i do with that sort of uh, money um from my perspective there's no better organization to support than the one that you guys are involved with. So I'd encourage everyone to basically just really consider about donating a little bit towards this incredible bunch of cool cats. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that. We we, we have such great support from Australia. Australians love the ocean Mm. and it's not enough to just, to just love it, right? You got to fight for what you love. Mm. So thank you for saying that. I hope we continue to go from strength to strength. Uh, Australia has become like a second home for me in the more than 15 years, 17 years now that I've been coming and going from Australia. So it's great to be back here. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a wonderful community. Thank you for being a part and of that. And you are always, always, it goes without saying, Peter, but I'll say you are always welcome here and you're always welcome to come by and have a, have a smoothie anytime. You may, <laughs> you, you may. I feel like you are shamelessly plugging your smoothie ability, but uh, that's not to say that it isn't well-deserved because you do make really genuinely some of the best smoothies. So I, I will certainly take you up on that. Um, I really, really appreciate it. You're never going to get a better plug for a smoothie than Captain Peter Habishnet. So, so Peter, from the bottom of my big vegan heart, thank you so much for giving up your time today. It's been an absolute privilege and honor to be talking to you today. And all I can say is keep up the incredible work. The Privilege and the pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Brad. Boom, boom, shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.